0: Good morning, everybody. I want to open up today with two powerful, spiritual, deeply meaningful words. Go, Ducks. All right. Calm down, calm down, calm down. Uh, Somebody said, church is just a little bit better when the Ducks win, and I think it's true. And uh, when God's team wins, it's good—the kingdom of uh, God advancing. Husky fans got to win too, so it shows that God blesses the just and the unjust, <laughs> it causes it to rain on the righteous and the wicked. Praise the Lord! And uh, so good to be with you guys today. We're going to jump right in because we have a lot to cover today. I'm going to give a, this message has a disclaimer attached to it. It's not—it's um, not dirty or anything, but. Uh, uh, we're going to kind of go into the deep end of the theological pool, and we're going to get a little bit weird and talk about the spiritual world, and uh, and I think it could be a bit challenging and provocative, probably especially if you've grown up in church like I did, and have a very kind of two-dimensional view of the spiritual world and maybe how God is and how He interacts with our world and the spiritual and the natural interplay and all of that. Uh, but we're going to go right into the Scripture and see what the spiritual world looks like. We're in this series. um, Oh, so let me finish the disclaimer. So if you have any questions or I say something that you go, that doesn't seem clear or good or whatever, please, uh, come talk to me after. And, uh, we'll, we'll look into the scriptures together because we're on a journey following Jesus together. Number one, I don't get everything right. Uh, Bethany knows this very well, better than anybody. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but even in, in study and theology, I'm going to give you the best I can and, and do the best that I can. But with the humility to understand I'm, I'm a fallible human and I also have to watch duck football games. So I can't just read the Bible all the time. Um, and, uh, I'd love to just journey with you on some of this stuff because I think it's interesting and I think it's going to really challenge and change you in your view of the spiritual world. We're in this series called God Has a Name, and this is important because the name of God is significant. It's different than how we name our kids. You know, we've named our kids Evelyn, Jack, and Penelope, and uh, I'm proud of my kids. I love them, and their names are meaningful and significant, but we don't name children today really in the same way that names were given or, or utilized or seen in the ancient world, uh, specifically the ancient uh, Hebrew world or Near Eastern world where the Hebrew culture comes and, and Israel is there and sort of the story of the Bible, the biblical world, if you will. Names had significance. They were representative of the character of that individual. Now, when we talk about God, oftentimes we, we give God's attributes kind of like a baseball card. So we'll say, you know, here's Barry Bonds. He hit 13 home runs. Well, 70. Thank you. Go Giants. Uh, record holder, yeah, 73, I think, to be exact. Uh, little steroids, but who's counting? You know, who's, uh, McGuire was doing it too, and so was so, Sosa, so, you know, hey. But uh, we give God's attributes, like he's omniscient, he knows everything, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's omnipresent, and here's his baseball card, and that's great, because those are true things about God. Those are attributes, but they're not necessarily who God is, to know this 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 person, to know who God is, and so his name gives us something I think more meaningful, which is his character, who, who he is. And let me just say three things. Bethany did a great job launching us off on this series last week. And I'll kind of kind of start where she left off or where she talked talk to us about yet last week, and then we'll move forward. Number one, God is a person, meaning he has a personality and desires a personal relationship with you and I. Uh, I love the words of Francis Schaeffer. He says, God is eminent. He's above it all. I'm sorry, he's transcendent. He's above it all. He's supernatural. He's He's God of heaven and earth, the creator. But he says that he's also eminent, meaning he's here. We, we have a title for God that we give, and it's God with us, Emmanuel. That we don't serve a God who's just transcendent. He's also with us. That Jesus left the heavenly throne room and came down to our planet and got into our mess and rescued and redeemed us. And he understands our weaknesses and our temptations. How many of you are glad that our God doesn't uh, stand afar off and sort of let everything that's going to happen to us just happen? But Jesus invaded our story with mercy. Come on. So God is a person. He wants a relationship with us. But number two, God has a name. His name is Yahweh. Uh, We get this from ancient Hebrew. We don't actually know if this is how we pronounce it, but we're probably pretty close and it's, it's Yahweh, and it means I am who I am. God is the self-existent one. He was not created. He is, in the words of Aristotle, the philosopher, the unmoved mover. He is a non-physical cause of all physical cause, causes that come later. If you, if you want to say it like this, he's the first domino, and he tips everything else, and that's what we see history and time and everything else that comes, the physical universe and the spiritual world and all of it, it starts with him. But more important than that that ontological reality of God is his character he says, I am who I am, and this, this name Yahweh also means I will be who I will be, or I will be who I am. And what he's saying is, whoever I am, my character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. Theologians call this the uh, immutability of God, okay, that he doesn't change, and, and we, we think of him maybe as like grumpy and reticent, but actually, he's so awesome, and that never changes, and this is really beautiful, as we're going to find out in the rest of this series, is that even in our unfaithfulness, his faithfulness and his graciousness and his compassion and his mercy and his goodness never changes. When we sin, it doesn't make God less good, okay? And it doesn't make him love, love us any less. And his name is Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. He's consistent. And the third point I want to make in, in introduction, and then we'll jump into the, the, the rest of the sermon today, is that Jesus is Yahweh. So we have this uh, incorrect idea sometimes because we wrestle with the mystery of the Trinity and like, how can God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit be one God and not three gods? And, And it gets confusing. And, you know, I've studied the Bible for a long time. I have a degree in, you know, Christian apologetics, and I'm still confused by the Trinity. So if you're confused by the Trinity, just join the club. Here's something that I want to give you permission as a Christian to embrace. It's this concept that it's okay for there to be mystery. That I don't understand how the internal combustion engine works, but I do drive to work. I don't know how jet engines work. In fact, I read a lot of books about if we lost, you know, our technology and like we wouldn't know how many of you know how to build a jet engine? I know Luke Deese does, but other than that, I mean anybody else. (laughs) Greg Dasso maybe, but you know. I don't know. I don't know how to build a computer. I don't even know how to make the, the I just know water comes out of my faucet. Come on. When I brush my teeth once a week, like a good, you know, Christian take my monthly shower, you know. And uh, I don't know how it works, but I, but I know that it works. And, and there are there are the mechanics of God that I don't fully understand. And I think that's actually probably how it's meant to be to some level, not because we just need to have blind faith or something, but because if you have the God who is the unmoved mover, the cause of all causes, then there isn't really a way to get behind him and get a mathematical equation around him, because he's the genesis point of all of this, okay? So, there is mystery in the Trinity, but what we see in the New Testament is not a new God that comes along. It's like, I had the iPhone 4 and now I have the iPhone 12 and takes better pictures. And we had the old bloodthirsty, you know, God of the Old Testament who makes people, he wrote that weird book about Leviticus where there's like moldy houses and what the priests have to do and how they sacrifice things. And, and this God who's like, do you know what I'm talking about? How many of you get intimidated by the Old Testament sometimes? And you're like, I don't feel like I understand. Okay, and here comes Jesus and we're like, oh, awesome, this is God 2.0. No, 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 no. Jesus is the same God that reveals himself to Moses on a mountaintop as Yahweh. And this is not something that the disciples were confused about. This is not something that early Christians were confused about or wrestling with. They, they knew that when Jesus said the things that he said, did the things that he did, and the sim- symbolism of what he did, and even in giving his life on the cross, and all of this was, a, was referencing back and revealing himself as Yahweh, okay? So as we talk about God's name, we need to connect this back to Jesus and understand that the God of the Old Testament is not like the old and busted version and Jesus is the new hotness. This is the same God revealing himself progressively through human history, okay? And Jesus is, as the scripture says, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, God in human form, giving us the clearest picture but really not better or improved. It's actually showing us who God has always been because Yahweh is I am who I am and I will be who I will be, and it's the same God, okay? So for this series, our core passage is Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven, and this is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. So this is interesting because we don't necessarily, because I don't know about you, but I don't speak Hebrew. I don't read ancient Hebrew. Uh, I don't speak Greek or read ancient Greek. Um, I, I, I am at a distance from the original biblical languages as all of us that are speaking English or Spanish or whatever language, modern language, French, or even, even modern Hebrew or modern Greek. We, we, these are different languages. Um, and I don't want to demean like our translations of the Bible, but, but there are some nuances that can be lost in translation. And one of the nuances that gets lost in translation is that this reference in Exodus 34 is actually woven through the entire story of scripture from cover to cover, and and it's it's woven in so much that when you study this out and you see the actual terminology in the original language, you realize, oh, it's there all through the whole story. And so all the biblical writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are referencing this scripture. Let's read it together, Exodus 34, verse six. This is God revealing himself to Moses. Moses says, show me your glory, God, I wanna know who you are. And the Lord had told him his name is Yahweh, but now he begins to tell him what that means. And he says, the Lord... The Lord, now, real quick, I know I'm slowing us down, but see where I put parentheses here, Yahweh, Yahweh? In the scripture, when you see this passage, or these words, the Lord, it's almost always Yahweh, okay? So if I read a verse and I say, the Lord, I want you to, in your head, say Yahweh, because that is God's name. Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children and their children uh, for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Some of you are like, what? We're going to talk about that in two weeks. Okay, so stay with me. Because it's actually better than you think, right? It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't exactly what what it sounds like, but it's, it's, it's good. Did you know that the, in the Bible, God is almost never called God. And I think this is one of those potentially losing a nuance in translation things, because in the Bible, God is actually referred to more specifically as Yahweh, Elohim, where we have this in English, the Lord God. So remember, the Lord in the scripture is Yahweh, and God in Hebrew is this word Elohim. Okay? In Hebrew, the word Elohim is like a title, or or it's almost like an occupation. So ancient peoples... Uh, And specifically the ancient Hebrews and in their cultural context, they have this word Elohim and it references God, big G, but it also references God's little G. And we're going to talk about that here today. And so in the Bible, it's very rarely where God is only referenced as Elohim, which really sounds kind of godly and cool, but it's like saying doctor, lawyer, police officer. But what is that doctor's name, right? It'd be like saying, okay, Yahweh Elohim is, is, is saying, okay, this is a different God than maybe someone would know or, or be aware of. And so in the uh, Hebrew, this, this word Elohim is like a title. And so very rarely is God just called Elohim. And I'll explain why in a minute. But another thing to understand, and then we'll get into different geeky stuff than this, but maybe just as geeky. The word Elohim can be either singular or Plural. And the singular or plural uh, cont- is set by the context of the sentence or the passage. Now, we have a word like this in English, which is the word sheep, right? How many of you know if you have five sheep, they're called sheep. If you have one sheep, it's a sheep. It's not a shep and sheeps, you know what I mean? <laughs> I was taking out my shep to the pasture and with the other sheeps, no. <laughs> have you ever said sheeps before and then you feel sheepish um, or sheep-sish. sorry, okay. I love that joke, but I'm a dad, so. Elohim can be either a singular or a plural word, just like our word sheep. Now, John Mark Comer, the guy that wrote this book that we're doing this series based on, God Has a Name, I'm going to read you some quotes from him today. He said this, God's name is not God. God's name is Yahweh. But this raises a provocative, disturbing question. Why does God need a name in the first place? What's wrong with God? In fact, why is God rarely called God in the scriptures? Why is he usually called Yahweh or Yahweh God? Short answer, and hang on, this might hit you like a freight train, because there are many gods. Somebody was like, today you're a polytheist. I'm like, well, I'll wait for the whole sermon. Okay. Because there are many gods. Let me give you two points today, and they're going to be big points. So this is the first one. You don't live in the world you think you live in. You, you don't live in the world that you think that you do. Go with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at the, the conflict of worldviews From 2022, living in the end of the uh, age of of enlightenment, as we've so monikered our our age, you know that we're the most enlightened. We've progressed the furthest. We are the most technologically advanced and scientifically advanced, and we're smarter than all the dum-dums that came before. How many of you know it's easy to always assume that you're better than everybody that came before? That's called the myth of progress. But it isn't actually true, necessarily. Um, The people that God used to write the scriptures and the the world that the Bible is sort of born into didn't think like we think. It wasn't just all purely physical and natural. They believed in this overlapping reality of the supernatural or the spiritual world. Genesis chapter one, verse one, it says, in the beginning, this is the story of creation. In the beginning, God, this is the word Elohim, okay? So it's one of the places where it is just used alone. In the beginning, Elohim, God, created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is used in the singular form, but it's important to understand that Genesis 1 is, is what is called a polemic, and it is actually written over and against in juxtaposition to the creation myths and mythologies and ideas that are in the ancient world from specifically Babylon and Samaria and Egypt, and the Babylonians had this document or this idea called the Enuma Elish, and they have this idea of all these gods and they're warring with each other. And out of this great cosmic battle, one of the gods gets defeated and they, the earth is created out of the body of this god. And we hear this and we're like, I've seen that. Mar- it's a Marvel movie, right? Or, you know, it, it, it's a comic book. Well, this is what they believed. You know, they had this idea. And as the Holy Spirit is inspiring Moses, who is the, thought, the author of Genesis, to write Genesis, he is actually writing what I would uh, dare to say is the greatest my dad can beat up your dad story that has ever existed. Because when you see the ancient... Mythologies and ideas, the Enuma Elish and the the Egyptian uh, cosmology and how how they believed the world came to be. What Genesis actually is, is every time the Babylonians or Egyptians would make a point, Genesis comes along and is like, nope, my dad's better than your dad. And what Genesis does is it says there aren't a bunch of gods that are really powerful and one of them won and kind of became the king of the gods. There actually was always one true supreme Elohim. And this is a mind shattering thing. Like if you were an ancient person living thousands of years ago, number one, you were going to die soon because everybody lived very short, you know. You didn't have aspirin and stuff. Oh, man, what a hard world. Um, you know, you brushed your teeth with like camel hair or something, I don't know. But, but you, you would hear this phrase, in the beginning, Elohim, one God created everything. And you'd be like, that is really provocative and shocking because we know as good Egyptians, circa 5000 BCE, or, that we have Osiris and we have Amun-Ra and we have Hapt and Hecate and all these different gods. Okay, And, and, and in fact, we, we worship these gods and they give us power and we, we even talk to them. And they would have looked at this view of this one true creator God as being provocative and shocking. Now, to us, it's not because we're kind of used to it, but that is what it would have been to them. John Mark says this, so there's God, the uncreated creator of everything, a being with no parallel in the universe, and then there's the gods, little g, created, invisible, but real spiritual beings. Whoever these other Elohim are, they aren't even in the same category, but that doesn't mean these other gods are a sham. Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at worldviews. So what we would tend to have as a worldview in our day and age is secular naturalism. And I think it can be best summed up by Carl Sagan who said, the cosmos or the universe is all there is, all there was, all there ever will be. And it's this idea that the universe is a closed bubble of physical causation. And, you know, we don't really, we, we don't know where it came from in, in this worldview, but we, we, we just know it's here. The, the biggest fad today is say multiverse, which is literally just kicking the can down the ontological street. But Basically, we don't know where the universe came from, but all it is is a, is a big, you know, a big physical universe and there's nothing from outside of it. The, the worldview that Christians tend to have is, well, there is a God, there is a spiritual world, but it's kind of called what we call modern monotheism, which is this idea that we have God and he's the only real kind of spiritual being with any power and then everything else is fake, And this is kind of like what I would call, you know, the sound of one hand clapping or something. It's like there's a God and that we're supposed to be sort of like we read all these verses in the Bible about fighting a battle and like praying for things to happen. And and this and and like bad things that happen. We have no answer because there's no bad guys in that kind of view. It's almost like there's God and everything else is fake. Now let's look at the biblical worldview. okay? which I would uh, one author called it this. And I think this is really appropriate. He called it creational monotheism which is the idea that again, we live in a very different world than we think. It's not that secular naturalism, but it's also not this modern monotheism. It's this world where there is a one true creator God, but there is also a reality of the spiritual world and there is a hierarchy and there's an organization and there's the bad guys. Now, to be very clear, we will use terms today and I'll use them interchangeably. I'll say like false gods, because there isn't a God like Yahweh. He is the one true God. There is no comparison. It's not like, here's this God of Egypt, and he's pretty powerful, and he and God are going to rock him, sock him, robot, and we don't know what's going to happen. No, God Most High, El Elyon, as the Hebrew said, or Yahweh Elohim, is the one true creator God who rules above and all else. But there is a spiritual realm, what the Bible calls the heavenly realm. When Christians read the Bible, they oftentimes will see the word heaven, and they immediately think of fat you know, cher- babies playing harps. That's not what the Bible, typically when it says heavenlies, it means God's place. It means the spiritual realm. And in the spiritual realm, there is a reality, a hierarchy. There are spirits that have a measure of free will and authority and power given to them by God who rebelled in the same way that we see that in the human realm or the earthly realm, okay? Are you with me? Okay, I'm working hard today. I'm going to eat good after this. All right. So when I say you don't live in the world you think you do, we're talking about a conflict of worldviews, and I want to at least get you to be curious today to say, is it possible that I have sucked in a secular worldview that basically diminishes the reality of the spiritual playing field, and in so doing, leaves me unequipped to deal with the world I actually live in? Because I think truth has this beautiful illuminating effect, which is that it opens our eyes to see that which is real and that which exists. And when we see that here, I think it's really powerful. And I'll talk about some of the implications of that. And I'm going to go fast because we've got a lot to go through. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. Let's get weird. Let's get weird with the Bible today. This is Moses in Egypt. And he's throwing down with Pharaoh. He's trying to get God's people set free. And Yahweh has told him to go. And he's going to the greatest world power of the time, talking to the most powerful man who was literally called a god, uh, you know, himself, treated like that. And he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And we see this story where Yahweh then does 10 plagues. How many of you are familiar with this? Bethany mentioned it last week, you know, the 10 plagues, like the darkness and the frogs and turning the Nile into blood. Here's where it gets weird. Exodus twelve twelve. on that same night, this is Yahweh. I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And listen to this here. And I will bring judgment on all the what? gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, which is, what I tell you that means, Yahweh. Why is God Himself saying, I'm dealing with another group? Because the word there for the gods is Elohim and it's plural. And it's and it's little G gods. This this nation of Egypt is worshiping these false gods, these real spirits that are actually powerful, but God is now bringing, the real God or the true God, Yahweh, is bringing judgment upon them. Here's what you might not see or might not understand. In the story, these 10 plagues are actually, again, polemics, but they're real physical manifestations against the real power of these false gods. Let me give you some examples. In Egyptian mythology, you have Osiris. He's, I think, the god of the dead, God, of, he's different things depending on what version of Egyptian mythology you're looking into. But Osiris, it was said that the Nile River which is very important to Egypt for very many reasons is his literally his blood vessels like that's his blood that flows through there and so here comes Yahweh God who's like turn it to blood and they're like oh my goodness you know what I mean and then and then uh, the the goddess Hapt I think it's or Happy uh, is the goddess of annual flooding so in Egypt the Nile River the flood cycles that would that would fertilize or bring the water onto the, the ground they could farm it it was a really big deal so they worshipped this goddess that they believed was responsible and I think was actually causing some of these things to happen or at least the power behind the spiritual whatever is going on here uh, for their annual flooding. So now when the Nile gets turned to blood and the water gets turned to blood, this is a direct challenge. Hey, there's a new power, a new sheriff in town, and I'm challenging uh, these gods. Okay, Keep, st- stick with me here. Okay, frogs. Remember we talked about frogs. There's the plague of frogs. And we're like, what's up with the frogs? Well, there was an Egyptian goddess named Haket. Uh, or Hecht. And uh, she was a frog-headed goddess of fertility. So in the ancient world, the storms and the flooding and the agriculture and the fertility, these are all really big deals. We're sort of separated from that world. We're not necessarily agrarian. We're industrialized as a society. But in the ancient world, the, 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 you know, time passing, the stars in the sky, the sun, the moon, the cycles of the earth, the flooding, all this kind of stuff, it's connected to their worship, their spirituality, their power. So here's this goddess Hecht. Uh, How many of you thought you're going to go to church and hear about a frog-headed goddess of fertility today? So, <laughs> Yahweh comes along and he's like, frogs. And Egyptians would have been like, oh, dang it. <laughs> then, let's move on. The Egyptians have a deity they call the king of the gods. It's a god named Amun-Ra, okay? I think if you watch, like, The Mummy with Brendan Fraser, Amun-Ra makes an appearance or something like that. But Amun-Ra is a the king of the gods in the Egyptian pantheon, and he's in charge of the sun. He's the sun god. Ancient peoples, tend, a lot of times, would worship the sun and the moon. It's actually interesting in Genesis, in Hebrews, it's one of those my dad is better than your dad uh, moments. The book of Genesis doesn't say the sun or the moon. It says the greater and the lesser light, and God is demythologizing And despiritualizing the physical universe, like, hey, that's nothing to me. I made the big light and the small light. Whereas the other gods are like, I am the sun, you know, and they try to make it something else. I know that you might be confused right now, but it's okay. We will finish and eat something good today. All right. So here's Amun ra He's the god of the sun in Egypt. And here comes Yahweh. And Pharaoh keeps saying, no, I won't let your people go. No, I won't let your people go. And all of a sudden, Yahweh says, well, hold on. You're king of the gods as the god of the sun. I'm going to turn the lights off for three days on the planet. And he turns off the lights, and there's darkness all over the land of Egypt for three days. Every single one of these plagues is actually a miracle where Yahweh is demonstrating his superiority. It's like he's the Navy SEALs, the Air Force, the Marines. He's all of it, and he just came in. He just rocked you. And the Egyptians would have been like, every God we've trusted in, uh, the, the blood, the frogs, the darkness, all of this is telling us that, that it's all misplaced and God is absolutely throwing down. Now, here's the part that's weird because you're like, it isn't weird yet? No, it's not weird yet. Everything I told you there is in Sunday school, except for Alman Ra. We don't teach that in Sunday school, but like the plagues and all that, you learn that in Sunday school. At least I did, but I'm evangelical Christian growing up. And, you know. So anyways, here's what's weird. The Egyptian magicians, they do some of the miracles too. And you're like, did you make that up? No, it's in the Bible. So when they, when they turn the water to blood, when Yahweh turns the water to blood, Pharaoh's like, hey, go get my boys, get my magicians. And they bring these people out, and they're not like, oh, Harry Potter. Like, it's not fake. They turn water into blood. Well, how did they do that? Because they had a real God on their side. They had a real spiritual entity power then they, they do some of the other uh, plagues. They, they, they imitate until they can't because Yahweh is body-blowing them. Boom, knocking down this God. Knocking down this God. Boom, attacking their spiritual power until eventually they can't even replicate what he's doing because Yahweh is demonstrating superiority. How many of you like the Bible more now? It's so much more like Marvel than we thought. Okay. <laughs> Our imitates life. So this is the, 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 the biblical picture of the spiritual realm. There is... Elohim Yahweh, the one true creator God, but there are spiritual entities of power. Okay, I'm trying to go fast, but in Exodus 15, after God delivers Israel from the gods of Egypt and judges the gods of Egypt and judges these spirits and brings them low, the Israelites are singing a song. They sing this song to Yahweh. I will sing to Yahweh for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation. He is my Elohim, and I will praise him who among the Elohim is like you, Yahweh, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. I want you to just see something here, contrast. Because what the ancient people knew was they, they saw God's beauty, his majesty, and his difference in juxtaposition to the worthless, horrible, and all, And we'll talk about how bloodthirsty and awful these false gods were, but they didn't deny that they existed, The spiritual world is richer and a little bit deeper than we might think, okay? Psalm 86, 8, among the Elohim, among the gods, little g, there is none like you, Yahweh, no deeds can compare with yours. Again, not denying they exist, just saying Yahweh is just so much better, it's not not close. Psalm 96, 4, for great is the Lord, Yahweh, most worthy of praise, he is to be feared above all gods, Elohim. Do you want me to keep going? Psalm 97, verse 7, all who worship images are put to shame, those who boast in idols. Now listen, this is a direct challenge from the psalmist to the gods. Worship him, all you Elohim, all you gods, little g. For you, Yahweh, Lord, are the most high, El Elyon, the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all Elohim. So God, in the ancient mindset, exists in a category called Elohim, a god or a spirit, a spirit being, But there is no comparison because these little G gods are created and derivative of the one true God. And yet we see that the ancient people did not deny they existed, therefore giving a much richer backdrop of the spiritual world than we might necessarily see. told you it was a weird message. Let's keep going. And again, I'm happy to answer questions. Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. Here's God. He spoke all these words. I am... The Lord, your God, that's Yahweh Elohim, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other Elohim beside me. Because the, the, the actual drift of humanity in human history is to, we always will worship. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this home to 2022, because you might be hearing me say, oh, that's all in the past. Like at some point, as John Mark Comer talks about in his book, at some point, all the false gods and demons in like the 1800s when we became enlightened, they all moved to Indonesia. They all moved to Asia, and that's where they all are now, and this doesn't exist anymore, and now we all know it's just time plus slime plus chance. Bone and blood and biology. No, I don't think so. God says, don't put any other Elohim before me. And then the second commandment is, don't make an idol. Don't make an image. Do not make a connecting point to the false gods. Not only should you not have another God uh, God is monogamous. He he doesn't roll. He's not a swinger. He he's not cool. He's not he doesn't have an open marriage, right? You know what I'm saying? He he's not into that. He he is like, I want you to honor me and love me and I'm and I'm going to give myself to you and that's it. And this is the whole story of the Old Testament is God like always being faithful and Israel is depicted as this unfaithful wife just cheating on God all the time, all the time and yet he continues to be faithful, redemptive and loving and merciful. But what the point I'm trying to make here, though, is that even in the commands and everything, we see this real spiritual world. Okay, I'm going to try to wrap this up on this part here. These Elohim, these false gods or little gods, little g, these spiritual entities or powers, we could call them demons and people will say demons. But I think there's a difference there. And I think biblically it's important that we get the verbiage right and the terminology right. Because otherwise we sort of miss the depth and dimensionality of this. But these, these entities throughout scripture are always depicted as, as having some measure of authority. So, for example, in the Bible, there's a really weird story in um, 1 Kings chapter 3. There's a king named Mesha of Moab. And David's armies, and, 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 or not David's armies, but uh, allied forces of Judah and Israel and Edom have surrounded the capital city of Moab. And the Moabites worshiped this false god named Chemosh. Now, if you study this out historically, what you'll always see with these false gods, almost always, is they always sacrifice children to them. Just put that in the back of your brain for one second. They're always wanting you to sacrifice children, your son, your daughter, whatever. And, uh, and that's how they get worship. And so Mesha is on the wall and he realizes I'm going to lose this battle. And so he gets his firstborn son, the crown prince. He brings him up inside of everybody and he sacrifices him to Chemosh. And the Bible like tantalizes us with no detail. It says, and a great indignation broke out against Israel and they withdrew from the wall. And we're like, what happened? Do you know what I mean? We don't know. But we do know historically that the kingdom of Moab survives for 200 years. So there's something there. There's like some power, some weird thing. And these, these, these entities, these Elohim are like connected to places. In Daniel chapter 10, if you want to get real weird, Daniel 10, here's Daniel. He's a Jew. He's in exile in Persia. And he's there for, I think, 70 or 80 years. And, and he's, he's a man of prayer. He's devout. And he's praying for three weeks for this, at this one point, and, and he's not getting an answer. And then after three weeks of prayer, this angelic messenger, uh, a lot of the tradition says it's Gabriel, the archangel, shows up and says, Daniel, you are precious to the Lord. Uh, but I, and I was coming to you to give you his message. But I was withstood by the prince of Persia for 21 days. Now, Bethany and I talk about this all the time. I'm like, what can stop an archangel for three weeks? Do you know what I mean? Because like some people are tough, but I've never seen dudes fight for three straight weeks. He's like, you spilled beer on my shoe. And then three weeks later, the conflict is resolved. You know, it was like at Autzen yesterday and people were cussing at each other in the you know, line. You stepped on my foot and you're caught in line. And no, none of the fights lasted three weeks. What being, what entity has the, the power to fight against an archangel for three weeks? Now catch this because it isn't even weird yet. So then the angel or this, this messenger gives Daniel the, the, the prophecy, gives him the vision. And, and Daniel, by by the way, when people see angels in the Bible, they're never like, oh, it's an angel. (laughs) They're always like, ah, they're like, they say I fell down as if I was dead. Do you ever wake up in the night and you get scared and you fall down as if you were dead or you step on a Lego? That's the only thing I can (laughs) correlate to this. They're always terrified. And so This angel actually has to touch Daniel a few times and like strengthen him and encourage him and get him to hear the message. And he says, oh, by the way, when I leave here, he says this, he says, the only reason I could come to you and bring this message is because Michael, the archangel, came and fought with me. So two archangels have to take on this unknown entity, the Prince of Persia, okay? Now, some scholars are like, the Prince of Persia is Cambyses. He's a ruler of the da-da-da-da province. No, 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 no. I've never met a human that could fight an archangel for three weeks. This is something different and the whole context of the passage and everything. That's a ridiculous interpretation. That's just borrowing from naturalism. It's just taking a modern worldview and and superimposing it on the scripture. Then he says, and when I leave here, I have to go fight the Prince of Greece. What? And the Prince of Egypt's like, you know, (laughs) I got next. You know, I mean, what is happening? What is happening? Let's go to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6. Paul, he just gets finished talking about why you need to put on the armor of God. Why do you need to wear armor if there's no fight? What do you need to be afraid of? Why do you put on the armor of God, put on the breastplate of truth, to, to withstand the fiery darts of the enemy? Well, like what enemy, right? And he says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is a huge thing to remember. Like we don't fight. It's not the Democrats, the Republicans, that, those neighbors, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is describing a hierarchy, an organizational chart, right, of this the evil spiritual realm. And that might be hard to chew on for us, because, I mean, even for me, I was even studying this out, and I haven't studied it out just this week, I mean, for years, years ago, when I kind of started studying some of this out, I'm like, Am I like believing in a bunch of false gods? And no, because you're not putting rival gods up against our God. What we're saying is there is a, there are spiritual forces. And if you want to call them demons, fine, that's, that's fine. But there are, there are powerful demons that rule over regions and areas. There are, there are these spiritual forces of darkness. And there's this battle going on in the supernatural world. Let me wrap all this part up. The biblical authors agree there is one true creator God. So if you're hearing me say there's a bunch of gods, that's not what I'm saying. There is one true God, Yahweh. He is God, okay? He's the creator God. But there are God's little G or powerful demons if you are too uncomfortable to read the Bible and take it for what it says. Um, That was a little sarcastic. I'm sorry. (laughs) Second service. Uh, I get more fleshly in second service. All right. That's why there's more people here, right? Is it more entertainment? Uh, One true creator God. But there is also a multiplicity of created little g-gods, created spiritual beings with measure of power and authority. They possess a measure of free will and autonomy to either obey and uphold the goodness and the goodwill and the agenda of Yahweh, the, the creator God, or rebel and do evil. If you're like, I need to read more about this, look at Psalm 82. Psalm 82. It's a passage that describes the divine council. You, Yahweh, sit in the divine assembly and you judge the God's little g. In Psalm 82, Yahweh actually tells these other entities, these gods, who I think he created to rule in conjunction, the spiritual, with the physical world. He says, you have done oppression, you've done injustice, you've done everything wrong, so I'm going to judge you and you're going to die like men. It's hardcore. If you thought Marvel was cool, this is better. But Psalm 82 and then Genesis chapter 6 another one of those passages that people are like I don't know what that means but it describes a rebellion of these entities these Elohim that fall from heaven that that leave their uh, the Bible says they left their divine estate they left their purpose somebody was asking me after first service they said do you think like angels like the good angels do they do they like accept human sacrifice and I was like no because they're serving Yahweh they're not doing the things that these fallen uh, evil entities are doing so What do we take away from this? Uh, There is an invisible world all around us, the spiritual world, and it's just as real as the physical world, and it's not necessarily as simple and just lame and boring as we think. And the Bible actually gives us a window into this to understand it. Now, what are the implications of this? Because I don't want to just leave you with that, okay? The implications of this, number one, this has radical implications for how we think about the gospel. Because we live in a, a city where you ask people, well, are you, you know, What do you worship? Whatever. They'll say, oh, I'm spiritual. Do you know the right question to ask after that? What spirit? What do you mean what spirit? Uh, Yeah, you said you're spiritual. What spirit do you have a relationship with? What spirit do you sacrifice to? What spirit do you worship? What spirit do you connect to? Uh, I'm a duck fan. Like, okay, so you're not a spiritualist. You're not spiritual. You're a materialist. It's not to be aggressive, but it's like Christians, we're, our job is to make disciples. So there has to be a making process, and sometimes there has to be an unmaking process before you can make something, right? Um, huge implications for the gospel, uh, because worldviews do not all lead to the same place. So this idea that like, oh, they all lead to the same place. No, they don't. They have irreconcilable differences, worldviews and, and, and spirituality. Number two, it has huge implications, this mindset for how we think about evil, um, the thing that, that the the problem of evil, like how could a loving God allow this to happen is an obstacle to faith in Jesus for millions of people. And there are some good philosophical answers to this. I can help give those to you, theodicies and arguments, but it's actually shocking. Um, Listen to what Greg Boyd says. When one possesses a vital awareness that in between God and humanity, there exists a vast society of spiritual beings who are quite like humans in possessing Intelligence and free will, there is simply no difficulty in reconciling the reality of evil with the goodness of the supreme God. It virtually sidesteps the problem of evil. The biblical writers and people in biblical times didn't wrestle philosophically with evil. They wrestled with evil because they understood they were in a battle. And because you're in a war zone, bad things happen because the other side is fighting against you. Soldiers are not on a battlefield in Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam. They're not laying there going, I don't understand how this could happen to me. There is no question about the mechanical nature of warfare. We are here. We are attacking. They are fighting back. And because we're in a battle, bad things happen. Our world, if it's not just this material world, and if we don't have a very limited to primitive kind of view of of God in the spiritual realm. If we recognize we occupy a battlefield and there is a cosmic war between God and his forces and the forces of evil, which ultimately will be defeated. And we're defeated at the cross in Christ. I mean, I can't tell you the whole story today, but I want to. But if you understand that we are in a battle, which is why Paul gives us this language, like put on your armor. This is why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer says, deliver us from evil. What evil? Ambiguous evil? No, real evil. You see. We don't necessarily go and worship idols, but we all have a phone, you know, that we can access information and, and use to, to worship. And we have totems and, and portals into the spiritual world. And when we begin to realize that our world is not just physical, it's spiritual, and we begin to make those connected dots, we realize, oh, I'm, in, I'm at war. Like, all the bad stuff happening, I don't need to fight against the other political party. I need to get on my knees and pray like there is a God And he's inviting me to participate in the goodness and the expansion of his reign and rule on this planet, which is war-torn. And that other people aren't my enemy, that our mission is to redeem and reconcile them to God. And so this changes our spirituality. I mean, as I've been going through this book the last few weeks, my prayer life has gone up a couple notches. I told Bethany, I'm praying like when I pray, maybe something's going to happen. You know why? Because I believe it is. Because I believe that as I pray in accordance with the will of God and I'm praying in his kingdom and his will be done that there is actual real spiritual battling and power and things happening. Okay, so I'm I'm going fast, but hopefully you get it. I want to end with this and I did not leave myself nearly enough time, but I'm going to give you the, the bullet points. Number one was we don't live in the world that we think we do. Number two is this, God is better than we think he is. So against that backdrop of all these false gods and, and, and this spiritual world and people being enslaved, I mean, we miss this in the scripture, but like people chose to follow these false gods and God actually let them. That's what the story of the Tower of Babel is about is Yahweh is dispossessing the nations and in Pentecost in Acts chapter two, he brings the nations back. But against the backdrop of this bloodthirsty, these bloodthirsty gods demanding human sacrifice and all this kind of stuff, now comes the revelation of Yahweh and why his name is so significant. Because it wasn't just saying, he's God, saying, no, 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 no. he's Yahweh Elohim, and this is what that means, compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. He's different. He's different. There is a spiritual world, but there is one true God, and he deserves worship, and he deserves our allegiance. The ancient world, it's fascinating, like I mentioned this, but Almost all the time you have these false gods, there's child sacrifice, and so not just, not, when I say child sacrifice, it's not just kids, like juveniles, but it's like somebody's kid. So you could be 50 and have a 30 year old kid, right? And sacrifice, that's what Mesha probably did, was not necessarily a little boy or something, but maybe an adult son. But these, these false gods are always demanding sacrifice of your kids. It's like, you have to give us blood and we'll give you power. I was meditating on this and I'm like, man, it's so weird because, you know, in the modern era, like, we don't see that. And then I thought, hmm, no, we've sacrificed 60 million children. I'll just leave that for you. Just think about that for a second. Maybe there's some ugly spirit that wants blood. The blood of injustice. The blood of racism. The blood of income inequality where the goods and services that we have as rich Western Americans is built on the back of somebody who's poor. It's pretty challenging. It doesn't sound like Yahweh. It sounds more like Artemis. There's a story about King Agamemnon. He's going to Troy. Remember the Trojan horse, this thing? And King Agamemnon sailing across the Aegean Sea, and the wind stops. And they realize they've angered Artemis, the goddess of the Ephesians. And She comes to Agamemnon in the story and says, you have to sacrifice your son. He does it, and then all of a sudden the wind begins to blow, and they go about their their business. Again, another sacrifice. And you go, well, it's just a story. Maybe, maybe. But I know a story about a God who sacrificed his son. I know a story about a God who sacrificed his son to redeem and to heal and to reconcile. I mean, that's... It's different. When God reveals himself as compassionate and gracious, in Hebrew, it's the words rachum vachanun. Rachum is compassion. It's the root word from mother's womb. And it's like the love of a mother for a child. I'm always blown away at how Bethany hasn't put our kids out to pasture with, <laughs> with the other sheeps, you know? It's like she's homeschooling them, loving them, feeding them, cleaning them up. They would keep being bad. She keeps loving him. That's how Yahweh is. He has deep parental compassion and love. And then the second word in that, rachum ve'chanun, chanun is action, and it's the action verb of compassion. So what Yahweh is saying is, I feel like a mother, a father, compassion for you, from like, like you came out of my womb. Like It's there. It's never going to stop. I am who I am. It'll never end. And not only do I feel it, I'll do something about it. And man, that sounds like somebody that I know. It's almost like if this God showed up in human form, he would act like Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Watch this. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. In Greek, it's like splaggenoia. It's like a word that means your guts hurt. You have a stomach ache. And, and this is what is the same. It's connecting back to Yahweh. He is who he is, and he always will be this way. And when he shows up in human form, he's still driven and moved, and his stomach hurts how much he loves you. He's moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. That is the God that reveals himself on a mountain thousands of years ago on Sinai. That is the God who shows up in human form 2,000 years ago, dies on a Roman cross. And that is the God that stands above all the other spiritual powerful entities that wish you ill and evil and you're living in this rich, dynamic, spiritual battle. Maybe many of you need prayer because you're scared now. Don't be scared. Just realize that you are a spiritual being. You live in a spiritual world and you serve the one true God, Yahweh. And if you don't, then start. And how do you do that? You give your life to Jesus Christ. and we, we pray a prayer, we say, Jesus, would you save me from my sins? Would you be my Lord and Savior? That doesn't just mean like clean my sin and then everything's better. It means you're joining a new team. Yeah. In baptism, when you go into the waters of baptism and you're baptized, what you're saying to the forces of darkness is you used to play for them, but now he plays for us. Yeah. And now you can't put your hand on them. You can't come at them. Their soul is safe in the hands of Yahweh this morning, I want to invite you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Right now, if you're here, I know that it's kind of a quick thing. But if you're here today and you say, I want to put my faith in Christ, I, I want to be Yahweh's child. I want to be a Christian. I want to know this love of this God. It's different than the false gods of our world that pull me into addiction and oppression and sin and hurting other people, hurting myself. If you want to know the one true God, I invite you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today. And I'm just going to ask that you pray this prayer with me, and then we'll give you another step. Repeat after me. Let's all pray it together. Dear Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you and in you alone. I give you my life and I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for saving me in Jesus name. Amen.